It's good to be with you again this evening, and uh, tonight as we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, I just want to say uh, God has given us so many things to be thankful for, uh, from the basics, like supper. Um, the whole church uh, pitched in on that last night, and we had a great meal tonight. I believe it was uh, women too, is that what you are called, ladies? Uh, I'm telling you, we had the whole gamut from beans and potatoes to salmon and asparagus. I had to practice restraint tonight, I'll be honest with you. And uh, fortunately, one of the things about having a lot of kids is you spend some of that time trying to keep them from getting food everywhere but in their mouths and that kind of thing. And so that keeps you from uh, the table for a minute or two. But uh, thank you all so much for your kindness, for your generosity. Uh, when you feed my family, you're not feeding an army, but you are feeding a militia. So we appreciate you uh, taking on that challenge. And uh, the music tonight from Lee Bethel, thank you all so much. Uh, what a blessing. Y'all both, uh, let, me, let me say this without the least bit of flattery. Uh, you looked good and sounded good. As my dad used to say, even those old hard ankles on the back row look good. <laughs> and uh, from beginning to end, ladies who provided the solos, thank you so much for stepping up and sharing the gifts that God has given you. I'm going to tell you, when y'all were singing about Jairus, I got a text message about that song from my wife in the back. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she said, her comment was, when you were singing that solo, it said, Reminds me of Reba. <laughs> I was thinking, I'm just glad you have better subject matter than Reba usually sang about. And uh, the last song, uh, what, a, what a perfect preparation to lead us into opening God's Word. Thank you all so much for um, realizing that church music is, is for the purpose of worship and not for the purpose of concert entertainment. Uh, some folks have not yet learned that lesson, unfortunately, and we're glad that you came tonight to help lead us into the presence of God. Thank you so much for that. Tonight, uh, we are going to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I want to talk to you tonight about the power of a godly influence. I want you to stop for a moment and think about the key Christian influences on your life. There's probably one or two faces that come to mind. Some of those people are already home with Jesus. I hope that among those people were people like your father, your mother. If it was not them, I hope it included others, pastors, Sunday school teachers, Faithful men and women of God who poured into your lives, not because they were geniuses, not because they had some type of supernatural ability, but they were people who were available, first of all, and secondly, who were obedient to God. You see, one of the dangers of living in the most trained, educated, polished generation that man has ever known is that people get the idea, if I'm not one of those really polished, really educated kind of folks, well, I really can't do much. Uh, and that's just absolutely wrong. Uh, there are places for those really polished people, really educated people, and then there are places where they go and they speak, and people look at them uh, like my daughter's cat looks at me. <laughs> Don't exactly know what I meant. Uh, God equips all kinds of people for all kinds of places. One of the mottos being used right now by our North American Mission Board is we're planting all kinds of churches for all kinds of people. Uh, one of the things that you have the privilege of doing here at, uh, at Theresa or at Lee Bethel or wherever you might be is God is giving you the opportunity to reach out to a variety of people beginning with those people that you gather with every Sunday to worship God and to study his word. Unfortunately, there are influences that are not godly. The devil has a mighty influence that is the absolute antithesis, the opposite 
of godliness is pure evil. Sometimes the church is uh, allured, uh, enticed by influences that are not what God had in mind. Influences like the influence of money. The influence of someone's last name. Secular influence. Now those things are not bad in and of themselves. The Bible says it is the love of money, not money itself, that is the root of all kinds of evil. Your last name should be a good thing, but I have seen people wield their last name like a sword and Jesus was not tied to it. Secular influence. Sometimes in the church people get the idea that so-and-so is really influential out in the world. If we could just get them to come to our church, that really would mean something. It's going to mean something all right. It's going to mean that if they don't come in with Jesus, they're ushering the world and all the world's influences into the door of your church. So just because a person has a title out in the world uh, doesn't mean that that's going to be a good influence on your church until they get saved and submit that title, that worldly influence uh, to the spirit of God. That's not going to be a good thing. Well, tonight I want us to think about the power of a godly influence. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is speaking to his son in the ministry, Timothy. Timothy was a young man. And in fact, in this passage, he talks about his youth. Now, when we think about youth, we think about teenagers. Uh, by the way, youth, that's a fairly modern invention, it was not until the 20th century that we developed, in fact, the second half of the 20th century, that we developed a real youth group mentality. Uh, my granddaddy quit school after the third grade to go raise maters and taters in Middle Tennessee. He didn't know what youth group meant. Uh, my other granddaddy graduated from high school and spent uh, his time either following mules or riding a B. John Deere across a Kentucky field for a few decades. They never knew what it was to be youth in the sense we know now. For Timothy, he was probably in his 30s. Uh, keep in mind, in a Jewish culture, typically you got to be 40 or so before they really think you are a mature man. And we think about the, uh, the power of a godly influence. We're going to pick up tonight in 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 12, and read verses 12 through 16. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. 1 Timothy 4, 12, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the great privilege we have to gather here tonight, as the song has already said, uh, to praise you. And God, we've opened your word now to continue praising you to hear a word from you as your Holy Spirit takes your divinely inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word and causes it to make application in the hearts of your people. Oh God, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Uh, help us to be people who receive your word gladly, who desire to be doers of the word and not hearers only. As we've already thought tonight about the godly influences that you have sent into our lives, many of whom are already at home with you. Oh God, help us to look closely and to see why it was they were so influential. And Lord, give us a desire for godly influence. Help us, Lord, not to desire to be someone who is just here. But Lord, to realize you've given every one of us a sphere of influence, 
a circle of people who are watching us, who are listening to us, who are waiting for us to pour into them. Oh, God, give us wisdom tonight to harness that opportunity to the glory of God. Help us, Lord, not to scratch our heads wondering why we're here. Help us to look around us and to realize this is why we're here. The people you've surrounded us with that need to know Jesus and know what it means to walk with him. Oh, Father, I pray that your spirit might empty me of me and fill me to overflowing with your power, that I would preach your word with boldness and with full conviction. And, Lord, as people hear your word, may they believe it, may they obey it. And, Lord, even tonight as we focus on believers, if there's one here tonight that's lost without Jesus, Lord, I pray that your spirit might show them their lostness, their deadness, their separation from you, their, their coming eternal condemnation. Lord, open their eyes that they might run to the foot of the cross where the blood of Jesus covers their sins. And Lord, they might know Christ as Savior and Lord and begin for the first time to have a godly influence on those around them. Lord, be glorified. Speak now as your servants are ready to listen. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight as we look at this text, I want us to understand that we are called to influence believers in Christ-honoring ways. Now in the context, Paul is uh, a, a, an apostle, a missionary, speaking to Timothy who is pastoring the church in Ephesus. However, that doesn't mean we need to disengage and say, well, this is really just a message for preachers. Because everything he says in this text can be and should be taken to heart by everyone who knows Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And let me say again, every one of us has a ministry. Every one of us has some group of people, whether large or small, that we are called to influence for the glory of God. As I was sitting while I go watching the choir and thinking about this text, I was reminded of what my dad used to say about his days in the choir. He loved singing in the choir. Now, he, uh, he, as they always say, he sang by letter. He just opened his mouth and let her fly. And he could do a great job. He wasn't a soloist. Uh, he loved to sing in the choir. He loved to sing riding down the road. But when people said something about him singing in the choir, now you have to understand, my dad was at his, uh, at his uh, highest point, or widest point, shall we say, uh, was about 6'1", 420. And my dad used to say, well, I make pretty good filler. <laughs> and everybody would laugh, because, you know, our choir loft wasn't, wasn't quite that wide, so he could take up mm, at least 25% of one row. And so, hey, I mean, that could come, in, uh, could come in handy if you just needed people to warm the pew. And we would always laugh about that and move on, and nobody took it seriously. But I fear that there are some of you here tonight who really may think that you're, you're basically filler. You know, somebody's got to come and fill the pews. Somebody's got to be a part of that Sunday school class and go listen to that teacher teach. And if that's the way you feel, I hope tonight that God will radically transform your view of why you're here. And I want to let you know why I chose Monday night to preach this text. Because Monday night, and let me applaud you, you've got a great crowd here from Monday night. Monday night, you're typically speaking to the A-team. You're speaking to the people that if somebody's going to be here, they're going to be here. If work is going to get done, you're probably the ones that are going to do it. If someone needs to be served, you're probably the ones who are going to do the serving. The C team is not ready to hear this message. But tonight, I believe you are. And as we walk through this text, I want to share with you four ways that we influence believers. Now, you may say, wait a minute, what about the world? Oh, we're definitely called to influence the world. But if we can't influence those who we have the greatest thing in common with, Jesus Christ, 
How are we going to influence a, a world that hates the gospel? That hates to hear the name of Jesus. We got to start where we are and realize that that's going to work out uh, in concentric circles, like ripples in a pond. When we understand who we are in Christ, then we'll understand who we are as salt and light out in a dark and decaying world. Number one, the first way to influence believers in a Christ honoring way is to influence believers by your example. Notice what he says to Timothy in verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Now, most of the time when people quote this verse, they quote that first phrase. Let no one look down. Let no one despise your youth. And nobody quotes the second half of it. I want us to handle this verse in reverse order because we're going to come back to the age thing here in just a moment. The influences he mentions are first your outward influence, your speech, and your conduct. We have to realize something that you've probably been told many times before, that you are a walking billboard for Jesus. You are a walking advertisement of the gospel. You're also a walking advertisement of your local church. And when people say, well, I wouldn't go to that church because, fill in the blanks, they might be blowing hot air. They might be making lame excuses. And they might be right. Make sure they're not right. Make sure that when they see you, they find someone whose walk and whose talk matches, and both of which glorify God. You know, one out of two isn't good enough. In fact, one out of two is terrible. One out of two is hypocrisy. If you talk Jesus but don't walk Jesus, that's a living contradiction. If you walk Jesus, but your mouth seems to be welded shut, that is hypocritical as well. If Jesus is worth building your life around, why don't you speak up for him? Those are the outward influences. But then there are the inward influences. Uh, Those things that you got to step back and wait a minute to see and to experience these. In love and faith and purity. When someone walks by, and all I do is see them walk by, uh, if, if they say things that are wrong, I'm going to pick up on that quickly. If they conduct themselves towards someone else wrongly, I can pick up on that quickly. Sometimes I have to look a little more closely to find out whether they love me or love anyone other than themselves. Now, there's some overlap. We we can't deny that at all. In faith, how do I know if you're a person of faith? It's not in your hair color. I hope it's not in the existence of your hair. My my faith would be going downhill. I've got to sit back and watch a while. I've got to uh, observe your life and find out, are you just talking faith or are you really living by faith? In purity, now we realize that purity is connected to what we say and how we live, but where does that come from? The scripture says, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. Your heart is a source. It's either a spring of living water or a sewer. And it doesn't take people that long to begin to find out what your example really is. No, not those worldly examples that you can buy and sell me if you want to. Well, let me be honest, that's not saying a whole lot. Or that you came from a very influential family. I remember several years ago, my wife and I were preparing to get married, and my dad was a woodworker, and he worked, uh, we were uh, poor as Job's turkey, as he used to say. I don't think Job's turkey showed up in the Bible, but I I understood what he meant. 
But sometimes we went into the houses of rich people. I mean, we'd gone to the governor's mansion in Nashville. I remember once we were in this rich part of another town in Tennessee, and uh, in the course of conversation, uh, the lady of the house began asking me about my fiance and about her last name and where she was from, and I knew exactly what she was doing. She was picking for pedigree. She wanted to know whether we were purebred or not. And I realized, wow, I've never had this conversation with someone before. I come from a family of German sawmill guys. Woo, pretty high class. Not at all. Farmers. Woodworkers. We didn't have any pedigree conversations. We do. We didn't. If we had pedigree conversations, it was probably about cows, and not about us. <laughs> no, that influence uh, that counts in light of eternity. Uh, my last name doesn't mean anything in light of eternity. My bank account nor yours means anything in light of eternity. But if I claim the name of Christ and I realize he's called me uh, to influence others by my example, well, I got to make sure that what's on the outside and what's on the inside do an honorable job of representing my Savior. And by the way, they overlap all over the place because they're connected. What's on the inside ends up on the outside. Now, what about that opening statement about not letting anyone look down or despise your youthfulness? In this culture, uh, Timothy would have still been considered a a youngster in a lot of ways, wet behind the ears, uh, probably uh, something that would be scoffed at by some of the more um, experienced gentlemen in particular. But Paul says, don't let them look down on that. The point is this, if you will represent Jesus the way you're supposed to, people will take note. And they won't say, oh, you just a kid. If they do, they're wrong. But if you are throwing around immaturity, childishness, no wonder you're not being an example. Because you're probably being exactly what people expect of you. Now let me flip that coin for a second and say just as some people can look down on your youth, some people also look down on old age, especially those who are of old age, who often say things like, well, I don't know why I'm still here. I guess God's got a reason Can I just say, with all due respect, with all due respect, you've got something better than that to share. Uh, You are not the old gray mare headed for the glue factory. (laughs) Stop saying that. Obviously, God's got a reason in you being here, and that's why you're still here. We understand that. And let me tell you what that is. If you've been walking with Jesus a number of years, and you probably have, you've got things to share that those younger people have not experienced. They may have youth and vitality, but that does not equal wisdom. That does not equal decades of experience of walking with God and seeing His faithfulness again and again and again. Oh, just as we won't want anyone to look down on one's youth... Don't let them look down on your gray hair or your landing strip, whatever it may be. (laughs) And don't say things like, well, sometimes I feel like I'm just getting in the way. Statements like that get in the way. And they waste your opportunity to say, let me tell you about the faithfulness of my Savior. Let me tell you. Uh, There was a time when people would tell about uh, the stories of the Depression. Not a whole lot of those folks left. But if you are one of those people, God was faithful to see you through. 
I don't know your story. There's all kinds of angles to your story. There's all kinds of outlets where opportunities can be plugged in to tell people about just how great our God is. You harness that example and you use it to the glory of God. Number two, not only do we influence uh, believers by our example, secondly, influence, influence believers by the word of God. Look at verse 13, until I come, Paul says, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Paul is saying this, the Word of God should be central to everything you do. He's not saying that's all there is to public worship. There are at least three other things that are mentioned in the New Testament, which include praying, singing, and giving testimony. So he's not saying that, well, the preaching is the only, that's all there is to worship. The scripture is all there is, but the scripture is the barometer to your worship. It's the word of God that tells you whether your music is what we ought to be singing in a worship setting. It's the word of God that tells us whether those prayers are biblical prayers or whether those are self-glorifying waste of time. Whether that testimony was about Jesus or about God bless me in the work I do. You're so lucky to have me. We've all heard those. He's saying whatever we do, make sure that the word of God is central. He says to the public reading of scripture, and then he mentions exhortation and teaching. What will you exhort them with? The word of God. What will you teach them from? The word of God. Or at least we should. Oh, there's many an exhortation that takes place in the church that has nothing to do with the Word of God. And, you know, the Lord finally opened my eyes to this, that many people want to correct people or call them down based on one word, opinion. Nothing but opinion. And so I've come to realize when somebody gets on their high horse and they get upset and they start threatening to leave and on and on and on and on, we need to ask them, what is the biblical basis for your complaint? Amen. That's pretty simple, isn't it? What is the biblical basis for your threat to leave this church? Well, oh, it's fixing to get deep. Well... And it kind of turns into a porky pig. And all of a sudden, it's checkmate, baby. They realize they don't have a biblical reason to complain. Uh, and I had to have conversations in the past with folks who say, you say that this issue ought to be blue, and these folks over here say it ought to be red, and the Bible doesn't say either one. How are we going to go in two directions at the same time? If we hook the mules to the wagon and try to go in two different directions, how are we going to do that? There's only one way. You're going to have to destroy the wagon. Take part of it that way and part of it that way. We call that a church split. That's exactly why they happen. People get full of themselves over something that doesn't mean a hoot in light of eternity, and they think they got to have it. The Bible doesn't back them up one iota, but they'd sooner die than not get their way, and boom, it scatters all over the place. And one of the things you're doing with your example is to not only point out by your example, but sometimes speak up and say, you're out of line. There is no basis for that. The Word of God. If we, uh, if we were to flip over a few pages to 2 Timothy. Man, some powerful words that Paul shares with Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.16, when he talks about what's the Bible good for? I've had people in the past, who questioned um, my desire to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. They'd say, well, shouldn't you follow the Spirit? Now, that sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? Man, that's a Jesus juke if I ever heard one. You know, super spiritual comment. Well, let's check that out. Verse 16 says, all, say all. All Scripture is inspired by God. In other words, the Holy Spirit's already been there. Amen. 
There's no question as to whether or not the Spirit's going to speak through his word. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It doesn't matter whether you're in a, a, a famous passage uh, like Psalm 23 or John 3.16 or if you're down in the depths of Leviticus, it is profitable. Amen. Because it is inspired by God, and here's what God's going to do with it. He's going to teach you. He's going to reprove you, which means there are times he's going to tell you you're wrong. Oh, hello. 21st century America does not like that word. But God's got it, and he's going to send it to you sooner or later. For correction, it's not enough to tell someone they're wrong. You need to tell them how to fix it. The Bible does that as well. And so he says, in general, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the woman of God, the young person who knows God, will be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's not that cool workshop you went to that's ultimately going to equip you. It's the Word of God. Workshops have their place. Studies have their place. But they will not go beyond the Word of God. Well, he goes on a little further. If you were to trickle down into chapter 4, which, by the way, remember the chapter and verse divisions were not there originally. They were added later. They're not divinely inspired like the text. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths when you turn on your tv to most religious programming there it is people have turned aside to a bunch of religious clowns who are not preaching the gospel who are preaching a message that's all about filling you with more of you than you already are full of the very idea of inviting, uh, I don't understand why, let's call him out, why Joel will invite people to come to Jesus when he never told them why they needed Jesus. He never told them that they were lost and on their way to hell. Why wouldn't they want to add uh, just another event or just another line to their resume if that's all it is? Oh, no, we've got, to, we've got to stand on the whole counsel of God and make sure that our influence is not just in our example, but especially in God's Word. Amen. So when you, when you uh, arrange your worship time in this church or whatever church you're from, there ought to be clear scriptural evidence why you're doing what you do. When you sit down in a Sunday school class or a small group, there ought to be a clear biblical text, first of all, and biblical uh, defenses for why you're doing what you do. When you plan activities, when you plan for the future, is it rooted in the Word of God? If not, why are you doing it? See, that's, what, that's a clear evidence that uh, the church is starting to think they're going to win the world by bringing the world into the church. The Great Commission says, take the church out into the world and make disciples of all nations. I heard a story several years ago uh, about a a little boy who thought how neat it would be uh, to catch a, uh, a little starling in the bushes and put him in the cage with a canary that could sing, oh, so beautifully. And so he, uh, he arranged this uh, experiment. He put the two birds in there together, just knowing that surely, surely that, uh, that little starling was going to sing beautifully like the canary. Days passed, days and days. The little boy was getting downright depressed. One day he came storming out the back door to his mama who was hanging clothes on the clothesline. She said, Ma-, he said, Mama, 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 guess what? He said, she said, let me guess. The starlings finally singing like the canary. He said, no, the canary's chirping like the starling. (laughs) That's exactly what happens when you let the world into the church. Well, number three, 
Just as we influence believers by our example and by the word of God, thirdly, we influence believers through our spiritual gifts. Look at verse 14. This hit me like a ton of bricks about a year ago. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. What's he saying? You need to cultivate the spiritual gifts that God has given you. Do you know what your gift is? And if not, why not? How long do you have to be a Christian before it becomes evident? Hey, this is a special way that God has gifted you. And as he explains here, uh, this was a gifting. Of course, Timothy's gifting was to preach and teach. Uh, The one qualification for an elder that clearly sets them apart from everyone else is that they have to be able to teach the Word of God. And he says, this gift, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. These elders came together and they laid hands on you to set you apart. Why? Because they needed another preacher? No, because they saw the fingerprints of the Spirit of God all over you in that he had equipped you to have that gift. I want to tell you something that may surprise you. The number one way to find out your giftedness is not through a spiritual gifts inventory. Those are written by people. They all have a bias one way or the other. I used one one time several years ago. The author was a bit charismatic, to say the least. And we had some teenage girls taking this uh, spiritual gifts inventory. And by the time we got to the end of it, at least two of them identified that they were prophets. Because that line item was calculated by statements like, I like to tell people what's on my mind. Well, what 14-year-old girl doesn't? (laughs) The number one way for you to find out how God has gifted you, have God's people observe you. You know, God's people saw uh, the, the gift of preaching in me long before I had any desire to do it. Long before I had any inkling, I had far more self-motivating dreams, uh, self-glorifying dreams than preaching the Word. And it was years later before I realized, wow, I can remember a a statement here and a, a statement there and an opportunity here and an opportunity there. Now, thankfully, they don't always come together as slowly as mine did. If people watched you for a year, what would they see? You see, if the Spirit of God has gifted you with certain gifts, uh, they're not locked away in a bank vault somewhere so that they don't get dinged up. He gives them to you to be used. Uh, One of the things I had to come to the realization about uh, when it comes to vehicles, especially a truck, it's not a toy, it's a tool. And if we're going to fill it full of fertilizer and lime and seed and rakes and hose and all that kind of stuff and drive out on the back 40, it's going to get dirty. It's going to get dinged up. But guess what? At least it's not going to rust out sitting in the driveway. Oh, what would God's people see in you, If you were to go to the New Testament, there are a few different places. Uh, one of those, 1 Corinthians 12, gives some examples, beginning in verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's the reason for your gift. It's for the common good of the body. Not for your glory, not for my glory, but to build up the local church. And they're given by the Spirit. You don't order them on Amazon. Just because you want a certain gift doesn't mean you got it. Uh, Some of the greatest division that happens in the church is that people influence people on the nominating committee, don't get me started on that one, uh, to put them in certain slots because they dreamed a dream of being in control of the money and God didn't give them the first gift to be able to handle money. They just wanted to be a control freak. 
Oh, my goodness, we need to know how God's gifted people and plug them in there. Being the church is not about putting people on a predetermined list of positions. Can I be honest enough to tell you the average church I've seen has about 12 committees and about four of them actually do something. Don't get too many amens on that. The others you could either summarize or merge and put them in, or others could go into extinction, and it would probably be 2021 before we missed them. Not only does that give major headaches to the nominating committee, it gives people an excuse for actually doing something for Christ because on paper they're pretending to do something for Christ. Hello. Here's what he has to say going on in 1 Corinthians 12. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills the spirit is not an it he is he the third person of the trinity you have the gifts you have because he distributed them to you the question is are they covered with dust are they on the top shelf somewhere you kind of forgot where they are you could find them eventually you know one of the things i i learned when i moved to north carolina Back in Kentucky where I grew up, when you pulled a plow out uh, in the springtime after the moldboard rusted, uh, you had to sand it up a little bit. One of the cool things about sandy North Carolina soil is you don't have to sand it. Do one round and it'll be shining so much you can part your hair in its reflection. I'm going to tell you something, friend. If your spiritual gifts are rusty tonight, put the plow in the ground. They'll be shining soon enough. Oh, influence people by the gifts that God has given you. He says, and here's what really hit me, verse 15, when he said, take pains with these things. Oh, what do you take pains with? Take pains with washing the car. Take pains with redecorating the house. Take pains with mowing the grass. All kinds of things that are not bad in and of themselves. They're just very temporal concerns. These are eternal things. He says, take pains. B, the word absorbed is what's called a gloss. It's an added word to help us understand. Literally, it says, be in them. Now, that does not mean uh, in the 70s, how many of you were into disco? Oh, come on now, y'all confess. I smell mothballs and bell bottoms in this place. People were into disco. Uh, people were uh, into Michael Jackson. People were into these things. People were into a powder blue leisure suit at one point. Oh, thank you, Lord, for your grace. Those are all things that came and went. I don't expect disco to come back. And I pray to the Lord that the leisure suit does not come back. That's not what he means when he says be in them. The idea is more like when we say, I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm not going to hold anything back, Lord. You've given me this gift, and now I'm going to be in. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. When I was about a junior in high school, my dad uh, cut a couple of white oak trees that were veneer-grade trees. Now, if you know anything about logs, you know those are the best ones. Those are usually the largest ones. He cut those, and he bought me a guitar. It was only about a $225 guitar, brand new. Uh, it was called J.B. Player. That tells you something. Uh, sold by Samick and made out of plywood. I played a little, just kind of messed around with it here and there, and really just didn't do much. In 2013, we began My Life Matters at Oak Lane Elementary School. The very first week we got up there, Brett Carver starts leading the music with a recording. They had been used to leading it, having a live musician. 
And he looked at me and I looked at him and I realized, I got a guitar just collecting dust. And you know what I realized? I'm looking at a couple of guitar players back here in the corner. Playing guitar for the sake of playing guitar is not worth much. But when I realized, well, wait a minute. This is not just the, the Tennessee flat top box, as Johnny sang about. This is a tool for the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, God didn't zap me from heaven and, and all of a sudden make me Chet Atkins. That'd be totally awesome if he did. <laughs> But I realized, you know what, I made more progress in three months' time than I had made in the previous 20-some years because I realized there's a purpose in this. It's not some self-glorifying hobby that I'm picking up. This is a tool for the kingdom. That's what he's given every one of you. Don't dare. Don't dare dishonor God by saying, well, you know, the Lord just didn't bless me much. That is blasphemy. Don't you ever say that. If you've been saved by the grace of God, you've also been gifted by the Spirit of God who lives inside of you. You take up that gift and you use it to His glory. So that your progress will be evident to all. I'm going to tell you, when you put those gifts to work, people are going to be able to see you grow. I'm not talking about your waistline. I'm not talking about your academic test scores. That's the kind of thing they say at school. You're, you're really growing academically. Well, that's good. But I'm talking about growing spiritually. People who grow spiritually are not people who just decided to try harder. You can try harder at driving a nail into that wall with your forehead, and it's not going to help. No, they begin to grow spiritually because they finally realized nail hammer they go together spiritual gift ministry field put them together and all of a sudden all those years that that you were stunted and frustrated all of a sudden those are wiped away as God begins to open brand new windows of opportunity and you begin to see covering more ground than you covered in maybe the first half of your life Amen. you want to talk about something that'll transform this church when God's people realize that they've been gifted not to carry a uh, card in their pocket that says spiritual gift, but that they actually put it to use, that will rock this church more than the walls can hold. Here's an idea. You may fill up these walls, go plant another one somewhere. Uh, the, the greatest expansion in a church is not in the same location. It's in duplication. Go plant another one that plants another one that plants another one. Here's the last one. We're also called to influence believers by our attention to the details. Look at verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. In this point, Paul is wrapping his arms basically around everything he's just said. He's saying, son, Timothy, pay close attention that you persevere in right behavior and in right theology. You know, we're a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. I was born in 1973. Roe v. Wade was passed in January of 1973 and was embraced by the average Southern Baptist, especially those among the academics. You could go to most any Southern Baptist seminary and you would hear from a pro-life, or excuse me, a pro-choice teacher who had little confidence in the scripture and maybe didn't even believe that Jesus actually got up from the dead. Which says what? You had lost men trying to teach preachers how to do ministry. Those people didn't wake up one day and say, you know what? I think I want to be apostate before I die. It happens because somewhere someone did not pay close attention to persevere in right doctrine. And they slid into being moderate, into being liberal, into being unbelievers. Uh, if I were to share with you the name Lottie Moon, 
you would know that name well. When Lottie Moon was wrestling with what God would have her to do, uh, she was dating a man named Crawford Toy. Uh, Lottie, you know, little bitty, four foot three, tiny woman, Crawford, great big bearded theologian of a man that taught at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary where I went to school. Turns out Lottie was a lot smarter than he was. Crawford Toy had gone to school in Germany and had been influenced by German liberalism, the hotbed of liberalism in the 1800s. He eventually began to deny basic tenets of the gospel, and he had to resign under pressure. And one of the men who had taught alongside him, he said, I would rather have lost my right arm. He left uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and went to Harvard University, where he would eventually become a Unitarian one who denies the Trinity, full-blown liberal who would eventually disengage from the gospel altogether. Is it any wonder why Lottie chose China over Crawford Toy? She went to China, invested her life, and ultimately starved to death serving Jesus. There is the difference between persevering in right theology and slip-sliding away with wrong theology. But he doesn't just mention theology. He also mentions behavior. Do you realize how many great men in the last year or two have fallen from positions of leadership in the Southern Baptist Convention? God help us. Men who were seminary professors Men who, and I'm not talking liberals. These were all people who would claim to be conservative. One of them said of himself, I'm just to the right of Moses. And yet they found out he'd been having a sexually abusive relationship with a student for a number of years. Men in the highest, some of the highest leadership positions in the convention who did not do what Paul told Timothy to do. They did not pay close attention to themselves and they fell into immorality. They lost their influence and fell out of ministry altogether. Now, I would not stand and say that those people are lost. I pray that they do truly know Christ. They're just unbelievably dishonored and have brought great dishonor to Christ. They didn't get up one morning and say, you know what? I'm bored with righteousness. I want to go commit adultery today. It happened because they did not pay close attention. They did not persevere in right behavior and in right theology. What is this comment he says when he says, Uh, For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. At first glance, it would sound like a work salvation sounding thing. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that, as one preacher said, the root determines the fruit. That if you are rooted in Christ, right things will be on your tree. That if you will teach right doctrine, you will show yourself to be a follower of Christ and you will lead others to be followers of Christ as well. When you begin to uh, scoff at the word of God, deny the deity of Jesus, deny the resurrection, you're on your way to hell and everybody you're influencing may follow right after you. By the way, did you know that the Southern Baptist Convention is the only denomination that went liberal and turned around? You want to talk about the grace and faithfulness of God. Every other denomination that started off that slope ended up in unbelief. Now, they wouldn't say it that way, but that's where they are. They've denied the gospel. They have very, very little use for the Bible other than a piece of literature. But God began to raise up men like Adrian Rogers to stand up and be president of the Southern Baptist Convention 
raised up a man in his early 30s named Albert Moeller to send him to Louisville, Kentucky to be hated, where people would call up and say, your child just died. He had two young children. His children were fine. But there was somebody on the other end of that line that loved liberalism so much, they hated righteousness. Unbelievable the number of death threats, all types of threats, attempts to fire him, but by the grace of God, he persevered. They said that school will die. It'll lose accreditation. It'll never come back. Can I tell you something? It has more students today than it's ever had since it began in 1859. And the gospel is being preached. It didn't just happen there. It happened right down the road at Southeastern Seminary. Rottenly liberal. Midwestern Seminary where a professor there out in Kansas City wrote a, a commentary on Genesis that was a full evolutionary view so bad that Broadman Press had to pull it off the shelf. And it was then that the lay people in local churches like you began to realize They've been using our vocabulary, but they're not using our dictionary. Oh, when they say resurrection, they didn't mean Jesus got up out of the grave. They mean some kind of psychological thing like Jesus rising in my heart. Complete nonsense. And by the grace of God, he raised up men who stood uh, in the firing line and took it on the chin. But they also took it while they were on their knees. And God honored them, and he turned our denomination around. Let me share with you one passage, and then we're done. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul realizes the reality of having looked like you were in Christ and in the end proving not to be. 1 Corinthians 9.27, he said, But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You see, there are those who run the race and appear to be successful, but they're not really running the race. They're cheating. Those that are running laps at the Daytona 500, and then somebody discovers uh, there were adjustments on that car that were illegal. You weren't running the race. You were faking the race by developing your own set of rules. I heard an old preacher say one time, if you want to bring it a little closer to home, he grew up down in Alabama. He said, I was helping a man pick cotton one time. This was back when we picked it by hand. Had a big burlap sack over my shoulder. He said, the first man to fill his sack, I will give $5 to now, this would have been back in the, uh, probably in the late 50s, early 60s, so $5 still amounted to something. He said, and I was picking down my row, and he said it was, it was ultimately going to be based on weight. And he looked down, and he saw a rock. And the temptation was too great. And he picked up that rock, pretty good-sized rock. He slipped it in his sack. And he topped that sack off with cotton and all, man. You, you know he was seeing that $5 bill going over into his hand and slipping into his wallet. And he got down the row and he knew that, man, he's the winner. And he reared back and he slung that sack into a steel bottom wagon. Boom! And the jig was up. He not only lost the contest, he dishonored himself and he dishonored his boss. There will be people someday who will stand before Jesus. Oh, who will have said Jesus 10,000 times in their lifetime. But it will be shown that they weren't running a race. And Jesus will give those disqualifying words, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. That doesn't mean that Jesus is ignorant of you. No is used in the sense of intimacy, of a relationship. Jesus is saying, I never had a relationship with you. Whatever race you were running, you weren't running mine. So Christian, let's sew it up here before we sing together. God's given you an influence. 
Are you going to cast that influence? Will you be an influence through your example? Will you be an influence by always putting the Word of God in front of people? Will you be an influence by taking the gifts that God has given you and wearing them to a shine? Will you influence others? Because if no one else, you will. You will stand up and say, um, biblical point of order. We may want to do this, but this is what God says. Those are the people who make the difference between a church just existing and a church thriving to the glory of God. Let's go out and be an example for his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great privilege we have to gather here tonight and worship you, to worship you in song, to worship you in prayer, to worship you through your word. As we've come now to this time of invitation, this time of response, oh God, help us to respond in obedience. Help us not to walk out and say that was a good message and it not be met with a right application. Oh, God, help us to realize that you didn't save us just to take us to heaven when we die. That between now and then, you've given us a work to do. You've filled us with your spirit. Uh, you've given us ways that we can be an influence uh, anywhere from uh, the church to the world to our own homes. Oh, God, I pray tonight that you would call us to repent of anything that stood in the way of that whether it's immoral behavior, whether it's downright laziness, self-pity, whatever it might be. God, tonight, even as we've talked about the church, you may have called a sinner to salvation. Lord, if so, tonight I pray that they would do what your word says, confess you before men, knowing that you'll confess them before your Father in heaven. Oh, God, do what you desire and help us to respond only according to your spirit's leadership as we sing together. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.